Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Jagam. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. This is an exciting topic for me. This is a huge area of interest. Supplements is a huge area of interest for mine. So really glad to have you on to talk about this because we'll talk about why you're uniquely suited to talk about this topic probably uh, here in a little bit. But before we dive in today, go ahead and tell the listener who you are, what your educational background is, and what you uh, are doing professionally. Sounds good. Well, thank you again for the invitation to come on today. I'm also very passionate about supplements. So it'll be a fun conversation today. So currently my role is I serve as the director of sports medicine research for Mayo Clinic Health System, and I'm located in our La Crosse, Wisconsin site. So people are familiar with the Midwest. You may know that area. It's not the mothership that's in Rochester, not the big Mayo Clinic campus there, but one of our satellite sites. I've been here for about five years, and I, I primarily have a research role. So about 75% of my time just allocated to kind of whatever research we have internally in our department, or we work very closely with the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, which is yeah. in our same kind of general area here in town. And then the other 25% is uh, for patient care. Uh, and I, I even struggle still to call it patient care because I'm used to clients coming from a personal sure. training background. And that, I would say that's still probably what it is. And I, I kind of am a nice outlet, I think, for our sports medicine and really primary care providers where anyone who comes through the clinic and has questions on sports nutrition, strength conditioning, just fitness in general, weight management, body composition, they just send them over to me and I can yeah. kind of schedule even just general consult appointments where, again, if someone just wants to pepper me with questions for 40 minutes, we can just sit down and chat about any of that. Or if they want a VO2 max test done, a, a DEXA done for body comp, yeah. we can scoot across the hall, get some more advanced testing done. And then we just recently hired a personal trainer that I, I can kind of pass patients along to if they want more continued kind of one-on-one oh, cool. you know, health with program design or anything like that. So that's a little bit about kind of what I do in the clinic setting here for Mayo. But then prior to that, I came from an academic background. So I taught at a few different academic institutions. I mentioned the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. I was a faculty there for three years. Worked with Chad Kirksick at Lindenwood University down in St. Yep. Louis area for about a year and a half. And then also at a small private school in the Northeast, Gannon University was the name of that one. So that's where I started coming right out of my PhD program. So I did my doctorate at Texas A&M University and I had an assistantship in their exercise and sports nutrition lab. So I worked with Dr. Kreider and that's really where I got exposed to sports nutrition research, especially dietary supplement research. They have kind of a long track record of doing great work, looking at the safety and efficacy of different supplements and then how they can influence performance and health and, and really a wide variety of uh, population. So that was where I really got the first kind of taste for research and kind of exposed to it at a high level. But honestly, even coming out of that, I didn't quite know if I wanted to go all teaching or all research. And usually that's kind of one of the, the questions academics are faced with. Yeah, you, know, you, want sure. to, you want to teach, you want to do research, you want a little bit of both. 
So I took mostly a teaching position first and then quickly realized, no, I don't think I like the teaching as much. And so really ever since that, I was looking for positions that could allow me to do more and more research. And now I'm fortunate to almost have, again, a hundred percent research focused position. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I like being, I like kind of being on the front end uh, when it comes to sports nutrition and studying stuff in a lab setting. And then I'll kind of do some consulting online with clients, but then also with a local university, I'm kind of like a call a sports nutritionist for them where I meet with a lot of the teams. I usually go a lot of, do a lot of preseason talks Yep, of kind of just, hey, hey here's why sports nutrition is important. Here's some, you know, kind of ways you can meal prep, plan out how much you should eat, what you should eat, when you should eat it, just kind of basic sport nutrition principles one-on-one. So that still kind of allows me to work with athletes kind of keep my ear to the ground on problems that they're encountering and really kind of sometimes helps shape my research questions of what are relevant problems for today's athletes. What are some things that we can study? And oftentimes I'll kind of double dip and things that I'm doing with the athletes there, I'll, I'll frame as a research study so yeah. that can collect that data and maybe publish it. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit about my background and some of the things that, that I do on a day-to-day basis here. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a great setup because your research helps you give better recommendations when you're giving those recommendations and you're talking with athletes and parents and clients that gives you ideas or that gives you insight into what they're wondering, what are they thinking about, or what are the questions they have? And that's just, that's a good cycle. I was kind of that similar in the similar cycle when I was in the collegiate setting, because I was also a strength coach and a professor. So the coaching side kind of shaped how I taught classes. The questions I got in classes kind of shaped how maybe I did things on training. And it was just a good way to stay abreast of things and not, not feel like you're out of touch. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, one of the big things that is always a question is supplements. Like you've been there. I've been there. We give a presentation on nutrition. And the first question we get is, hey, what do you think about pre-workout? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe we do give a presentation on supplements. And the first question we get is, oh, well, what brand do I buy? Yeah. And so that's what we're going to dive into today is this issue of how do I choose good quality supplements. And you're a good person to to talk to about this because you recently released a paper on the prevalence of essentially low quality supplements. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what that means here in a little bit. I say recent, that's in air quotes, because this was started many years ago, right? Right. Yeah. The idea of yeah. it. And that, I mean, that's still true for all research. If I try right. to print, like that thing has probably been in the works for years mm-hmm. uh, before mm-hmm. people are actually reading about it. But, it's, but the funny thing is, you, this seems like a very timely topic. Like it's just becoming more and more something that people are openly discussing. I feel like, and maybe it's just because that's why I pay attention to but when this came out, I was like, man, this is just so timely. And it's just funny how you may have started this five years ago or whatever. And now when it finally came out, this is just a growing topic. Whereas if it came out five years ago, it might have just kind of gotten like maybe a little bit lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that, it's just kind of funny how that works out. But you wrote this with a few 
people some listeners might recognize. We actually have one former guest on this show, Grant Tinsley, was a co-author. But you also got Galpin and Garner. I, you know, Patrick, as you presented with Patrick at the last July's NSCA conference. So some awesome researchers, awesome practitioners on this paper with you. But the title of the paper is The Prevalence of Adulteration in Dietary Supplements and then Recommendations for Safe Practices. So the first question I want to ask you is, number one, what is adulteration when we're talking about dietary supplements? And then what are the ways that we know of that that, that occurs? So when kind of defining adulteration for this conversation, it's somewhat easier because we already know it's focused on dietary supplements. But if you take kind of a broader perspective of adulteration, it can really include anything from food, cosmetics, dietary supplements, pharmaceuticals, where adulteration is essentially it's that finished product is not what it should be, whether it's rancid, whether it's contaminated with prohibited substances. That's kind of what we use in the context of dietary supplement world and an anti-doping policy, but it could be tainted with other kind of foodborne agents that shouldn't be in there. And so again, it depends on what thing we're talking about, whether it is shirts or cosmetics or or supplements and so forth. But the way we framed it for this paper was, again, more through the lens of the dietary supplement world with the specific context of anti-doping, because we lean heavily on WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency's policies for a lot of the language that we were using in this review article, because we kind of wanted it to be broad to the entire you know world's population or at least in terms of athletes whereas every country will have their own regulations when it comes to dietary supplements so it's impossible to go country by country and say well this is how canada defines adulteration this <laughs> yeah. is how england does so we try to take more of a global perspective with, with some of it and that's where again wada's language and policies and their anti-doping code was really helpful because they have a lot of this stuff really well articulated within their anti-doping policies, because that is kind of the governing body, at least from a doping standpoint, across the major kind of sport world, or certainly within the the Olympic, you know, circuits, if you kind of want to look at it that way. And so there they have kind of a nice definition where adulteration would be anytime there's a prohibited substance included in that dietary supplement product. And then they have a massive ongoing continuously updated list of what they consider a prohibited substance but you could probably guess what types of at least Uh more popular agents are on there steroids different stimulants sometimes pharmaceutical based agents but the ones that are on this list for a reason because they've probably been shown to influence performance increase performance or they carry major health risks or potentially both and that's why they're banned by most sporting agencies mm-hmm. and certainly on WADA's anti-doping or prohibited substance list is essentially they won't allow you to consume that. And if you take it unknowingly in a supplement, that's on you. You should have known better. At least this is kind of, I'm paraphrasing here from sure. WADA's perspective, but that's how they approach it is they don't really care how it's in your body. If they test you and it's in your body. That's a anti-doping violation, and then it sets off a whole chain of events depending on where you are in the competition cycles or if it's a, a feature ban 
or stripping of metals. Like there's a lot of different outcomes that can come from essentially a failed drug test is kind of how they commonly refer to that as. Yeah. Um, and WADA, they just came out with their new list, right? They, I believe they like just within the past few weeks, this is November. They came out their 2024 list because they update, like you said, it's like ongoing. It's updated every year. Yeah. And so it's again, on the athlete and their support team to kind of cross-reference what that athlete supplement stack or again, foods or whatever they regularly Mm -hmm. consume. You want to make sure you kind of cross-reference your list with WADA's list make sure, oh, no, we better eliminate this or we better double check this ingredient label to make sure we're not unknowingly taking something. So that's Mm -hmm. obviously one preventative measure. And then the other one would be more so just choosing the quality supplement brands, which you alluded to earlier of, again, whether or not it was on the label or not on the label. But again, that's the risk that you're taking sometimes with choosing different supplement brands. Yeah, because the cross-referencing only work if the label is truthful, right? Yes. Like, and yep. so what's funny is some supplements. I mean, some supplements it is flat out on the label. A banned substance will be flat out on the label. Sometimes, I, and we can talk about prevalence here. Sometimes it's not. So, when the case of adulteration in dietary supplements. Is it mostly companies knowingly adding these substances or is it mostly inadvertent? Do, do we know this at all or what have you seen? I don't know if you could ever definitively know that unless you literally are testing everything. I would, my opinion or, or guesstimate would be the latter where it's kind of the inadvertent or they're not putting it on the label, I guess. They're yeah, adding it. So, but they're intentionally putting like a, an anabolic or a stim in. And again, like whether that's intentional or yeah. there's some cross-contamination, yeah, I don't know, but I, I still think it's that situation where it's not on the label, but it very well could, in fact, be on the product. But then also I think it's going to be somewhat country by country. You, you kind of hear about those black market labels where people will seek out those products. Hey, if you go down to Mexico or something, you can buy these supplements right over the counter. They put it right on the label. And, and again, some people seek that out because they <laughs> want some of those active ingredients in there yeah. that are notoriously prohibited or, or banned, but they're people that aren't really competing in some of those drug-tested yeah, sure. competitions or whatever organizations they're competing in. So that's where it's hard to get definitive answers on some of these because there's so many supplements out there and uh, the manufacturing practices vary. The regulations are going to vary. And so, I mean, sometimes your guess is as good as mine with how truly prevalent some of that is. Yeah. Now the, the paper just focused on the U S right. Yeah. We tried to limit it to again, more of the U S based yeah. one because there was actually another really nice systematic review that had come out that had tried to do more of a global reach mm-hmm. and we didn't want to completely kind of duplicate what that group had already done. Yeah. Do you remember any stats that kind of jump out to you on that paper of this study found this percentage of supplements that were adulterated or contaminated? Um, and also you have this huge table in the paper that like, here's a paper where like one side, the paper lists all the papers that evaluated claim like label versus what was found. And then the actual compounds that was found. Yeah. So we'll get to what was found. 
Do you remember like anything off the top of your head? I don't know. You probably don't have the paper right in front of you, but do you remember anything specifically with regarding stats of the number or a kind of rate of adulteration? Yeah, I mean, pretty consistently, some of those papers were referencing situations where about 14 to 25 percent maybe of the products that were tested were found to have some type of adulterant within that product. And I, I thought that was high. I mean, I guess I kind of knew what I was looking for when writing this, but I remember when I first came across that literature, that was pretty staggering to see that high of adulteration rate in some of those products. And then I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I, again, I think some of it's kind of category by category where I think certain types of supplements are going to be much more susceptible or where this problem is just more common for those types of products just because of the way it's marketed, because of its target demographic, they might be more inclined to blur the lines a little bit of what's yeah. allowed, what's not allowed. And and they're, again, targeting a specific group of people who really want to feel their supplements kick in yeah. or, or work or whatever uh, you kind of want to use as a catchphrase with that. So it's not as simple of just saying, take a thousand supplements, regardless of kind of specific category, and then say 15% of any product is going to have a adulterant in it. I, I think it's so variable yeah, depending sure. on what category we're talking about. And then even, like I said, what kind of country or where it's manufactured. Yeah. How how much does the actual analytical testing method? Very that, much. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That'll matter, matter quite a bit. And that's where sometimes too, finding out what's all in these. From a biochemical standpoint, you kind of have to know what you're looking for, too. It's not like it works in the movies where you just put a product in the machine and it'll spit out like, oh, Wait, here's exactly what's in wait, it. Wait, what? Yes. It can't just be like it is on Black Panther where you just have an AI analyze something? <laughs> Hopefully one day we can get there. But, you know, again, like some of these, the, the labs that are used to evaluate these products, and I know this is a big issue in the anti-doping practices, Sometimes they don't quite have the methods to keep up with the doping practices that are used in sport. And so sometimes we're playing catch up with that side of the industry of knowing what to look for, how to detect it, how to test for it and some of that. So again, some of this is potentially still unknown with what's exactly in these. And then same thing from a regulation standpoint is sometimes there, there's an allowable amount that can be in supplements and same thing with foods while there yeah. is different metals or different hormones. There's different things that can be allowed in these products up to a certain threshold. And so sometimes just because it's in there doesn't necessarily mean that's problematic. It doesn't mean it's dangerous. That could just be within the range of normal acceptable limits. And that's just kind of the reality that we live in when we consume stuff nowadays. Is it's hard to truly get clean or 100% pure, whatever yeah. you want to say there for anything, whether mm -hmm. it's food or supplement based. Yeah, that's a great point, especially food, because as much as people love to bash the supplement industry for its regulatory uh, situation, food is no better. <laughs> I mean, it might be worse in some cases. And yeah. then you mentioned cosmetics. Cosmetics is, is the Wild West, man. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to the regulatory standpoint, I mean, it's always compared to drugs, right? But when you look at food, when you look at cosmetics and how often things are contaminated or have dangerous compounds or recalled, it's, it's a lot. And so 
yes, supplement industry has its issues, but these issues are across a lot of the things we consume, which is interesting. Yeah, and we, um, we kind of mentioned a little bit in the paper. Again, we didn't want to open Pandora's box, but yeah. when it came to discussing inadvertent doping, where, again, a, an athlete might take something and unknowingly ingest an adulterant or some kind of contaminated agent, that would be a situation of inadvertent doping. They got yeah. caught doping, but they didn't know that they were taking what they were. And there's been several situations where that's kind of been traced back to food or, or hmm. some kind of food mm-hmm. agent that they consumed that had a hormone or some peptide in there that they then failed a drug test. And it was an anti-doping violation. I know some athletes might try to use that as their first line of defense. Of, oh, yeah. no, no, it was some tacos that I ate last night, like not a steroid cycle that I've been following for six months. <laughs> yeah. But there are situations where that has been kind of proven when they trace it back or, or test certain foods and stuff like that. So again, to your point, if you fail a drug test, it, it could be the supplement, but it could be some lotion that you're using. It yeah. Could, again, food, if you're traveling internationally and they don't have the same food preparation or, or regulatory practices, you might be opening yourself up to potential issues there. So not that athletes should be paranoid and walk around not touching anything or not eating stuff. But again, it just can come from a yeah. lot of different places. Yeah. It's not always the supplements that are to blame. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to supplements, what are all the different things that have been identified? So I think, I mean, anabolics for sure. Like I think we've mentioned, kind of mentioned that and alluded to, to that. What are some other things that have been found in these supplements that whether they were intentionally put there or not, that I guess people should be aware of? I, I would say kind of second to more of the anabolic type agents would be different stimulants and stimulant derivatives seem to be kind of a common issue and, and kind of going back to the categories of supplements that are probably more problematic. That's where we see pre-workout supplements and that are kind of thermogenic or are, are weight loss type products that seem to be the biggest culprits when it comes to these stimulant agents kind of randomly appearing in some of these products that are randomly tested. And again, I think it goes back to if this is how it's done, where they knowingly add these contaminants to their product because they want that product to work from the user's perspective where they take yeah. it, they feel amped up and ready to go crush a workout in the gym. It's well, yeah, because you're taking amphetamines. <laughs> Like why your pre-workout really worked today is you were unknowingly ingesting a different stimulant or a stimulant derivative. And again, the the consumer is going to take it and go, wow, this is a great product. I'm going to buy more of it because I really feel amped up when I train. But again, as both people know, those carry some major health risks when you're taking different stimulants and things like that, especially when there already could be a high amount of caffeine or other kind of sympathomimetic agents in there that are already causing those types of effects. Um, So I would say those are kind of the other major culprits when we look at what types of things pop up. And then that table that you alluded to kind of goes through all the different molecular names and structures of some of those different agents that are in there. And again, when you look back to the category supplements, most of them are going to consistently fall under that kind of pre-workout or thermogenic type of subcategory yeah because the table also gives the compound that was identified a lot of them are stimulant <laughs> so many I, even i was surprised at how many of them were stimulants and you're exactly right it's just like okay 
if a company wants you to be basically hooked on their product or think it's the greatest thing on earth, the easiest way to get people to to think that is this, is put a stim in there, make people feel really good or feel really amped up or euphoric, and they're gonna think that it's the greatest thing ever. And if it already has things like caffeine or yohimbine in there, and then you're adding some kind of amphetamine-like product in that or substance in that, that's not a great cocktail. <laughs> yeah, definitely carry some risk. Like I said, I'm sure you'll feel great in the moment. <laughs> yeah. right? You'll hit the gym, but yeah, some definite health risks there. Yeah, and the other one that I've seen a lot, and this was mainly because the FDA has uh, like a daily newsletter where they kind of give an update on things that are getting recalled or things that got warning letters. And it's like every other week where these like sexual performance enhancement products get pulled because they all have Viagra or Cialis in them. Yep. Like basically, if you just should, should just assume that those have well, those in there. I don't know if you remember, I think it was probably two or three years ago now, but Major League Baseball had to send out like a, a blast to all the players and coaches and agents for that exact reason. They essentially mm. said, stop taking these cheap male enhancing supplements and things like that because all of them are laced with X, Y, Z yeah. as you alluded to. And so, yeah, that's one that we didn't really include a lot in here, but that certainly could make kind of a similar list of common issues or common kind of agents that are found in some of these different types of products. Yeah. And it's in like the bigger take home is if it's not like a third party tested product, the best way for a company to make you think that their product works is to put in a pharmaceutical for that intended purpose. So if it's a muscle building product, they put anabolics in there, you think it's going to work. If it's a pre-workout or a thermogenic or maybe like a mood enhancer, they're going to put a stim in there. If it's yeah. sexual enhancement, put Viagra or Cialis or some other drug in there. And you're going to think the product works if that's the case, or if that's a really good way for them to make you think that. Pat and I had a similar conversation. And again, we may re revisit this in the future, but he foresees the nootropic movement having really kind of common problems in a couple of years for the same reason people mm -hmm. are, he's kind of assuming I, I'm kind of with him on this, but a lot of these pharmaceutical agents will probably end up being in these nootropic supplements. Yeah. And then there'll be things like Adderall or mm -hmm. other, you know, types yeah. of That's a good drugs point. that are added to yep. these where people like feel like, oh, I'm having a, a very clear moment. I'm in the zone from a mental standpoint. And again, it's, well, yeah, you're taking some drugs potentially. Yeah. Um, to give you that nootropic or kind of euphoric type level of focus that the marketing claims are in alignment with that, but certainly they're not disclosing that, hey, by the way, you're also taking pharmaceutical medication. So we'll see where that kind of part of the industry goes, but mm. that's that's a really big kind of up and coming class of supplements is the nootropic agents. Yeah, yeah, that, that is, that's a great point because it's kind of falls in line with the pre-workouts and people like wanting this edge mentally or they want to have better focus. Yeah, nootropics are huge. So yeah, your product might have some alpha GPC, but it also might have some Adderall. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's then like turn to some to, to third party testing then, because when we're talking about how people can protect themselves, how they can choose quality supplements, this is usually the first line that people mention is third party testing. So yep. can you just go over like 
exactly what is third-party testing and what do these organizations typically do with the products? So there's a few different kind of major players when it comes to the third-party organizations that you're referencing, but essentially what these organizations are for or their kind of intended purpose is they can function as a, an independent party or a third party that will kind of independently evaluate and test particular dietary supplements. So they will test it for some of the major kind of contaminants, even things like heavy metal. Mm -hmm. Certainly a lot of the common prohibited substances that are on WADA's list and other kind of known agents that are added there. They'll also test for kind of purity to make sure what's again, kind of on the label matches what's actually in that canister, what's in the product. And then they kind of put their stamp of approval and, and literally their logo will be on your supplement <laughs> label mm -hmm. um, that just kind of is another level of assurance to the consumer that, hey, someone else has tested this product, making sure that what's on the label is what in, is in the product. And that also that there's nothing in there that is on a prohibited substance list. So if you're an athlete who competes in drug tested organizations, Again, that gives you that protection and kind of level of assurance that I'm safe to take this. If I fail a drug test, it's going to be on this company, not on me, because I'm only taking stuff that they claim they've tested yeah. and confirmed that should be safe for consumption and allowed for me to consume per the WANA policies and stuff like that. So that's kind of what, what is meant when people say choose supplements that are third-party tested. It's when you're picking stuff out of a supplement store, look for that logo. There's again about three or four more common ones, but those are what those seals are kind of in reference to is that third party approval where they've tested it. So, yeah. So why did you go ahead and what are the big ones that people should look for? And then, um, anything, you know, what's that? I was gonna say, I think I even got a picture of you, right? So oh yeah. Was, NSF certified by sport. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's probably one of the more popular ones, at least within like some of the U.S. sporting organizations. So NHL, NFL, MLB, they'll, I don't know if it's a hard mandate, but they strongly recommend teams where if you're providing supplements to your athletes, it has to be an NSF certified by sport product. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of have some of those partnerships in place. Banned Substances Control Group was another really well-known kind of high-quality third-party organization. Informed Choice is kind of another one, Informed by Sport. So those are kind of the top, I think, third-party organizations that we'll usually see on some of these different supplement labels. Now, do you know the differences between some of these organizations? And if you don't, that's fine. This is just something I kind of wonder, because if you go to these websites of these organizations, particularly NSF versus Informed Choice, well, I guess BCSG is a good one too. You'll see a pretty big difference between the number of substances they test for and or can detect. I want to say for NSF and informed choice, it's kind of in the upper 200s, but then banned substances is like in the 500s. Yeah. Because that's what they specialize in. So what's going on there? What's the discrepancy? Like how can there be that big of a gap between... Okay, one, it's almost in the 200s, and the other one's in the 500s. Why doesn't NSF do 500, or why is there even that big gap? That's a great question. I don't know what the 
backstory is on the decision making there, but that's what I was just going to say when you, I thought you were getting to just what is the difference. It's usually that it's the number of agents that they're testing for is the biggest difference I see. And then I, I'm not as familiar with it, but I think it also comes down to like testing frequency. So some of those yeah. party organizations will test more frequently in order for that product to still be classified as a third party tested product. So they'll make sure it's on a higher frequency multiple times mm-hmm. a year, however it is, because I, I've heard that criticism sometimes of some of these third party organizations is it's just like a one-off test, like <laughs> just kind of pass it once and then you kind of get this blanket approval and then you're good and it don't really have to do any follow-up after that. Whereas ideally we would, from the consumer's perspective, we would want this done pretty regularly, yeah. different batches, different lots. And just kind of covering the basis to make sure that company and manufacturer continually abide by those good manufacturing practices and label and quality control and stuff like that. So I'm sure that's probably what some of the differences are as well. And maybe on Form Choice or some of those other companies, they just either didn't want to pay for that wide of a panel that they're testing for, or if they found that they've done that for years and they've never detected any of those. So it's pointless to just keep testing for things that aren't ever found. I I don't know uh, if that's the case or not, but that's kind of what I see in terms of some of the differences across them. Yeah. And the other aspect is there's a reason that WADA has to update its list every year because new stuff comes out. And obviously third-party testing is a really good first line of defense of making sure that your product that you're taking is safe, that it doesn't have anything that's not on the label and that the label is accurate. It also still doesn't remove the risk. Like it just doesn't because they can't, uh, maybe their, maybe their list isn't fully updated. Maybe they don't have the requisite methods to detect certain things. I mean, the people that they seem to be so ahead of the game. Like yeah. the development. So I think, I think uh, I just watched the Balco thing on Netflix of how long he was able to get away with what he was doing because he had something that was currently undetectable. Yep. And so he just was like, oh my, they're not taking anything. They can't be detected. They passed the test. Well, of course they did because you stumbled across or whatever it was across something that was not yet to be detected, which for, and if anyone hasn't watched that, the Balco thing on Netflix, the, the banned substance, substances control group is a big part of that. Which is, yeah. which I thought was pretty well, interesting. They were kind of born out of that era yeah. and kind of saw the need for such a company and I agree. They, I don't know if they would trace their lineage back to that moment. Obviously, I don't know them personally, but <laughs> yeah. I think at the time they were like, well, yeah, we need to grow this side of the industry to combat some of those other issues that were going on at the time. And yeah, I agree. Great documentary and yeah, great kind of backstory. And I've always kind of joked with people, it's like, where do those people come from? You don't go to school to be a, a black market chemist to make designer drugs for right? They They obviously probably got recruited somehow and a lot of money was thrown at them and a lot of resources and labs and equipment. So it's a weird world I know. where there's some brilliant people in there, but they're again, yeah, kind of the enemy, I guess, in, in some people's eyes. And again, they're ahead of the game a little bit when it comes to the anti-doping side of it, because there's probably more money mm-hmm. on the kind of black market side of it for them to stay one step ahead of everyone that's trying to detect these things and test for them and so forth. So yeah. 
to your point, like with third parties is, do they have the right lab methods and know exactly what they're looking for? Or has it not really been publicly known that some yeah. new agent is out there? So, yeah. And even from a consumer perspective, and I would put like myself or us in this, because unless, I mean, maybe you do pharmace- pharmaceutical research, I don't know, or <laughs> been looking at those journals. I don't. I can't, even if someone with a nutrition degree, background, there's substances, I don't know all of them when I see a label, but supplement yes. formulators, they are diving deep. Like they are trying to essentially keep pace with drug companies on the compounds that are being identified that could potentially have new physiological effects. So it, I think it's important to have some sort of framework if you don't know everything you're seeing. And the vast majority of people taking supplements do not have nutrition background, chemistry background, biochem, pharmaceutical background to know everything that's in the product. They just have to rely on what's on the label or the front of the label, the marketing, and the person that maybe suggests recommending it to them. So beyond third-party testing, what are some things that people can look at or look for with a product that are indicators that it's going to be a quality product? The other thing too is even just doing a little bit of homework and kind of cross-referencing yourself with some of the kind of top ingredients in that product and maybe quickly looking. I usually like using examine.com or I'll direct people to that site is, hey, if you ever have questions about what an ingredient is, just quickly go into that database, type it in, and they'll kind of queue up any relevant literature and kind of give a good synopsis of what it is what it's supposed to do, any research supporting it, any risks, anything like that. So kind of cross-referencing a supplement label with that. And then one step further, the dosing on it as well is does it have a sufficient dose uh, of that active ingredient in that product for it to kind of work or, or do what it's intended to do? And that's where some of the things that we mentioned in the review paper and I've talked about as well is the proprietary blend concept of sometimes they don't necessarily specify the dose. And I get it, they're protecting their intellectual property right from the, the supplement side of it. So they do that so that there's not copycat companies yep. out there that just rip off their formula and stuff like that. But from the consumer's perspective, they don't know if they're getting sufficient amounts of some of those ingredients in there. Or if it's just kind of sprinkled in and there's not really mm-hmm. enough to kind of do anything from a physiological perspective. So that's kind of another thing. And I, I feel like this is changing within the industry. Now you see a lot more transparent labels out there, a lot more companies shifting to that because I think they know the consumer was kind of asking for that a little bit. So this has yeah. kind of come backwards, at least from the consumer pushback or seeking out some of those labels where they were more transparent of here's exactly what's in it. Here's the amount that's in our product. And so doing those kinds of things, I think are, are great kind of extra steps that you can take to be a little bit more educated. So you're not just wasting money on stuff that may not even really be worthwhile. And that's something that I think a lot of people do is just uh, throw a ton of money at their monthly supplement stack when maybe only a third of what they're taking is actually going to kind of work or confer any kind of meaningful benefit to them. Yeah. So go ahead and can you just briefly explain proprietary blend for anyone who might not know what that is. So that's where you'll see five or eight ingredients kind of grouped together on a part of the supplement flax label, and they'll be literally listed. Sometimes it'll say 
proprietary blend or energy matrix or energy blend. We see this a lot in the pre-workout supplement labels. Yeah. And if you look at the amount of the dose, it just has a little symbol next to it, meaning they're not going to specify how much caffeine or how much beta alanine or L-citrulline or anything like that is in there. They just say it's in here. It's in part of our blend. Mm-hmm. We have the formula on the back end. We're not really going to disclose that because, again, we don't want other companies ripping off our formula. So that's what I'm referring to with the proprietary blend concept yeah. of what's kind of in there, but you really don't know the dose or the amount. And I've gone back and forth with people in the supplement industry. They're like, well, foods don't do this either. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. But it would kind of be the example I usually counter with that is it would be like ordering an alcoholic drink, not knowing how much alcohol is in there. <laughs> yeah. Luck, it could be 45% or it could be 2% or non-alcoholic. And you're just going, ah, that could make a big difference. One way or the yeah. Other. De- yeah. You're dealing with ingredients and compounds that have a little bit more of an effect on you than eating a food typically. Yeah. Yes, food, because, yeah, basically an ingredient list in food is kind of a big proprietary blend. We know generally how much of something might be in there because we see grams of something on the label. And we know that everything listed from most to least in terms of weight, we don't know specific certain things. And we can do that on a supplement label. We can see that. But the other caveat with proprietary blends is, yes, they're trying to protect their IP. They don't want their, maybe this magical blend of in, ingredients they've discovered. But I mean, I think the other issue is like, it could just be a way to, you mentioned sprinkle a little bit of something in and not have to disclose that. And I think that's first issue. And the other, the other issue is in almost every proprietary blend I've ever seen, it's like 12 ingredients divided amongst like five grams or whatever, four grams. Yeah. And that's the bigger <laughs> thing to look for if you really want to do your homework is if the net weight of that blend is below the recommended dose for one of those ingredients, one. you're getting underdosed for the majority of mm. those ingredients. So again, if that net weight is like 1.5 grams and you're supposed to be taking two to four grams of beta alanine, you're sitting there going, well, what the heck? How can I get enough of this if the whole blend together is less than the recommended dose? Yeah, and then beta alanine is like the fourth ingredient on in yeah. the blend. <laughs> right. Well, it should be one of the major players, the the highest, at least kind of net mount. And then if you still get the tingles, it's, the label is not accurate. Right. Yeah, if it says, yeah. And that's like the other issues, right, too, is if the label is not tested for its potency, its accuracy. I mean, if I remember right from your paper, like the range of percent inaccuracy can be in the hundreds. Yep. There was one paper with pre-workouts and they showed that for caffeine variability of like, it was a wide range of Mm -hmm. what was in a per serving basis versus what was reflected on the supplement facts label, which again, can have pretty important implications for some people not knowing how much of it you're getting on a, a per serving basis there. And so just a kind of another thing to be mindful of, and that kind of dovetails into one of the other things we were mentioned with poly supplementation practices. Mm-hmm. So making sure you pay attention to what's in one product if you're taking six different products to make sure you're not over consuming one particular ingredient. Caffeine is always kind of an easy one to point to there. Of, yeah. Here's someone who wakes up, has coffee, 
maybe take a pre-workout around lunchtime, afternoon, you have your five-hour energy, and then <laughs> kick off the night with an energy drink if you're going out. That's a gram and a half of caffeine yeah. you might be putting yeah. down. And, and you could kind of come up with all, all kinds of examples of that. Of someone takes a multivitamin and then they also take a, a pre-workout. Well, there's going to be a lot of overlapping ingredients there sometimes. So just pay attention to some of those to make yeah. sure you're not hitting potentially toxic levels. Yeah, some for sure. Yeah. And again, going back to the nootropic thing, that's another aspect of that. If you're taking pre-workout and coffee and nootropic, like almost all the nootropics will have, if it's a blend of ingredients, you'll probably have caffeine in it. So yeah, knowing what's in each of the things that you're taking, that's a really important thing to pay attention to. How about that's more on the user side of it, right? That's yeah. not any fault of the yeah. supplement company nope. themselves. They're so put in there what they think is right. Yeah. Yeah. That's more best practices yeah. from the consumer side of it, not necessarily pointing the, the finger at, at the manufacturer. And, and same thing, even from the formula design perspective, there's still other parties involved in the manufacturing of that supplement. So hopefully they're selecting manufacturing sites that follow mm-hmm. the rules or the formula they're supposed to. I know there's a lot of science that goes in that just kind of batch formulation to make sure there's even distribution of ingredients within the canister itself. So there's yes. both settling, that's a great point. Enough things so that from one scoop to the next, mm-hmm. you're getting different amounts. So again, not all of it's one person's fault. Sometimes if there is some of this variability, it's just, there's a lot that goes into putting a product on the shelf and having a consistent concentration of ingredients and every scoop that you're taking so there's just a potential for a lot of again just variability in that process that is definitely something that probably hardly ever gets thought about is is if i'm if i have a powder 10 different ingredients in a canister are they evenly distributed in that canister yeah i could have one scoop of a pre-workout that has 100 milligrams of caffeine and then based on if it's not equally distributed, the next scoop might have 300 milligrams. Yep. Um, so yeah, if they didn't do their due diligence to really mix that well, but then you think about like a ship to you and then maybe it sat on a shelf for a while. Yeah, that's a really good point. How about ingredient types? I guess what I'm talking about here is like, all right, let's just use creatine as an example. We know there are several brand name forms of creatine, CreaPure being the most common, but there's other things like Cre- like Magnet Power or just other trademarked, registered, licensed forms of it. If a supplement label doesn't have that, what, are, what exactly are they using? If it just says creatine monohydrate and it doesn't tell you what the brand is, do we have any clue as to like what might be being used in that product if it's in fact in the product this is like, yeah. <laughs> right that's probably the biggest issue is getting over that part is if it's in there or not and to, to the other part of that question i don't think there is any way to definitively know again unless you go back one of the things we talked about before we're recording is if you actually just test it yourself you send it to a lab say hey can you test the amount of creatine that's in here to kind of get that answer back and so that's why and this is really hard from a consumer's perspective to dig this deep into the weeds. But yeah. as you mentioned, Creapure, very good reputation in the supplement industry. 
really the gold standard when it comes to kind of high quality creatine monohydrate. And so that would obviously be what you want to look for in a multi-blend product is, are they sourcing it from Creapure? But again, like a lot of consumers aren't going to know that. That's hard to be aware of those kinds of, of things. And so that's where, again, you kind of point back to the third party seal and mm-hmm. try to direct them there and starting there. But beyond that, I, I don't really know if there's anything else that a consumer or the individual themselves can do at that point, unless they really want to do their homework on investigating some of those sourced ingredients or some of those other kind of details of the supplement fast yeah. label. So I, I guess I, I mean, I kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't know that was an option that you could just get your, if you wanted to, you, if I wanted to get my pre-workout uh, products, like individually tested, is that an option for people to do? You could. Yeah. We do that with research a lot. In fact, a lot of IRBs will require you to have a certificate of analysis yeah. showing that what you're giving the research participants is again, yeah. what's on the label. And so there's all kinds of different labs that will do that, but it's, it's not cheap. You're pay the, <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll pay five times more for the lab testing than you would for the supplement itself. And then that's also just confirming that canister. Yeah, just the canister. Uh, pass yeah. that test, not necessarily mm-hmm. every future batch that you're ordering from in the future. So again, it's not really a reasonable solution, but you could just send it to a lab asking for the certificate of analysis to confirm what's in there and some of the other things. So it'll even test for E. coli and yeah, some of the other foodborne illnesses or, or things like that you, you'd want to screen for in some of those situations. Yeah. There's one right down the road from us that I've sent stuff to for yeah. testing for research projects. Yeah. The, it's funny that you mentioned research. That actually is used to be gosh, back in the day when Joey Antonio was doing all those big protein studies. And there's a few other people at the time doing just like protein supplement studies. And so I just asked them, hey, what brand did you, what brand did you use for your study? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we use this. So I'm like, oh, well, that, that must be good enough. They're using it for research purposes. That's what, I guess I'll just take that brand. Yeah. Well, yeah, you got to know it's legit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hopefully they're doing kind of the homework on the front end and picking yeah. something or having that, again, lab analysis to confirm. Because like I said, that here at Mayo, that's the IRB requires oh, yeah. that part of it. I can imagine. To make sure that, again, what we're giving research subjects is legitimate and safe for them yeah. to be consuming. So usually sure. it's, it's coming from that perspective as much from anything else. Yeah. Well, so before we hop off today, is there anything we haven't mentioned or discussed that you typically tell athletes or parents or anyone that's looking at a supplement? And is there anything else that you want to mention as far as how to choose? I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention this part of it because a lot of the teams and stuff that I talk to are high school level. So I talk to a lot of parents and coaches. And again, like you said, at the very beginning, there's always a lot of questions and interest around supplements. But when I give my little pep talk for sport nutrition, supplements really just makes up like that small part of what can really Mm -hmm. help them as an athlete, you know, like get eight hours of sleep, hit your energy and macronutrient requirements, follow a good training program. (laughs) Like those are way more important in the grand scheme of things than taking supplements. And 
I made this mistake way back when I was a gym bro. Like I was way more interested in the supplement stack I, I was following as opposed to a, a legitimate training program that was yep. well designed and I gave max effort. And so I was putting the cart before the horse, which a lot of athletes do. A lot of people are more interested in, in some of those little sprinkles on top than yes. the core pieces of that puzzle. So I feel like I always got to plug that part of it and just say, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in supplements. They sound cool. There's a cool biochemistry in the works, but the mm-hmm. other things are far more important when it comes to hitting your peak performance as an athlete. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was, I'm with you when I was, when I was playing football that coming up with that, that off season stack, man, that was, I loved that. It. it was so much fun. Cause you're like, okay, what's going to give me that edge this off season? What's going to kind of take me to that next level. And yeah, all this research, money spent. And when I say research, I'll put that in air quotes because my main <laughs> website was probably just T Nation or something like that. Definitely <laughs> not PubMed. And uh, it's just so easy to get caught up in the marketing language and the promises. And they know what buttons to push. They know how to talk to you. It's definitely not easy to avoid and it's easy to get caught up in. But you're right. Like, what is it? Our supplements that are the most efficacious, we're talking like still single digit percent for the most yeah. part improvement and whatever. Yeah. I mean, if I yeah. were to map out like my top 10, it would easily get under 10 if you really made me narrow, narrow the list down. And that's something too, like when people ask me like, well, what supplements do you take? That's changed from about 20 supplements <laughs> all the way down to five maybe that I take yeah. on a consistent basis and really don't spend anywhere near the money that I used to. Mm-hmm. And, and even as a researcher, like I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I started in the field, like looking for effective supplements and I was way more focused on that. I didn't really learn about or pay attention to the safety and the risk and some of those things until later on in my career. And I think I just, I assumed that things were done the right way and yeah, what's in the label or what's in the product was on the label. Like I just put that trust in there, assuming that all this other stuff didn't happen. And I, I guess I was kind of naive looking back on it. And so now it's kind of not forced me, but now I've just opened my eyes to really the bigger picture here with supplements and all things that are factored into that equation. And so that's just where I'm more strategic about which ones I take or yeah, you know, which 100%. ones I'll, I'll recommend for other people or say it's worth considering. So that's just something yeah. that has changed for me personally over the years as a, a yep. gym rat. And then also from a researcher's perspective. Yep. Yeah. I'm very much in the same boat. It's, and it's also just a cost benefit ratio. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about literal cost here, like just the money. Some of these things we're talking about that are single digit percent improvements. That's not insignificant per se. Mm-hmm. It's just, if it's, if you're not high level, if you're not literally looking for every single edge possible, just really isn't worth your your resources and again like now i've shifted to more like health centric <laughs> than i am like again what's the best pre-workout on the block mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. you know what vitamin d am i taking now that winter's here or like well, yeah. what's a good fish boil or fish oil <laughs> supplement that i could add in to get my omega-3s those are things that are more on my radar now than yeah you know where i was 15 years ago for sure all right. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Andrew. Thanks again for coming on. Where can uh, people find you, follow you if they want to learn from you? I would say Twitter and Instagram are probably the, the two best spots. It's where I post a lot of the research that we're doing or other kind of interesting articles and things that I come across. 
We do have a department website. It's just slow to update. So it's not probably the best hub for kind of current things that we're working on. And that I would say clinicallypress.com is another great um, site to send people to. That's where have a podcast we're not the best about posting episodes but we also kind of use it as an educational hub for yeah other information and resources and we've actually converted it to a nonprofit last couple of years where we're trying to use it as a way to provide some of these educational resources but then even kind of safety tools things like cold tubs uh aids and stuff for local high schools and sporting organizations that just don't have the money to cover those kinds of more sports medicine yeah, type supplies. So we now just try to fundraise for it. A lot of our uh, kind of revenue goes back to procuring those types of equipment, things and, and stuff like that to just give back to, again, kind of underserved athletes or high school organizations that just don't have the money to, to buy yeah. those things. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, the, all that will be you know, left in the show notes. If you want to go check out Andrew on social media, go check out those resources. Definitely go ahead and check there. And then uh, Andrew, thanks again for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll cross paths at conference season once it comes around again. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.